Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. So those of you who are joining us, uh, thank you so much. Um, I know that you all can uh, hear us. We're just going to wait a few more minutes as people file in and get us ready, and we'll get started. All right, we think we'll hold with that, and I know that maybe some will come along. Oops, people are still joining. Another batch. Okay. Well, let's get started. Um, we are so... Uh, grateful to have you with us, um, Bishop Perry. Thank you so much. This is uh, a wonderful way for us to, to to talk with you before going into Holy Week. And also, um, we were all uh, looking forward to having you with us for Easter Day, um, Evensong, which is truly a beautiful experience. So thank you for making time uh, during a, an incredibly busy time. Um, before I go any further, would you please uh, open us in prayer? Sure, sure. Uh, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Ever living, ever loving God in the midst, in the midst of this time, in the midst of the crisis, may you fill our hearts with courage and compassion. And may you ground us so that we may remember that you're with us and may you enliven us so that we may have the faith, the hope and the ability to look and to wait for what is to come all the while being very aware of the holy now. Mm. In your blessed name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you so much for those of you who are joining us. Uh, I uh, am so excited to have you all with us, and we're going to get to some questions uh, that Bishop can uh, uh, interact with. This is the final class of a, of, a, uh, uh, of a class that I've been teaching all through Lent called Practicing Resurrection. I know some of you uh, have registered for that class and have been following it, and Last week, we finished uh, with Matthew's uh, depiction of the resurrection, which is um, connected to, the, to an incredible moment, uh, the, the seismos, the earthquake, uh, the uh, unbelievable breaking forth of the kingdom of God in time and space. And um, Bishop Perry has uh, had to hit the ground running uh, uh, as our new bishop, and I I know that I speak for many, many clergy and many, many laity when I say that we're um, just in awe of her of her incredible leadership during this time. It's been it's been compassionate, um, it's been prayerful, uh, it's been um, surprise you know both both anxious because it's authentic, uh, but at the same time uh, incredibly trustworthy. And uh, it's been such a privilege to, to, to be with her at the beginning of her, um, of, her, of her tenure as bishop, 
and to watch her work in this way. This is not an easy time for anybody, um, again, for anybody who is new, but the purpose of this, um, this, this class tonight and this meeting tonight is uh, whenever anybody's in a crisis, uh, we tend to only see one slice of them, even if that slice is um, amazing and wonderful. And my hope tonight is to actually step back and take a breath and see the whole uh, person um, that is Bishop Perry and to get to know a little bit of her story in her own words. Uh, many of you I know have read articles about her and are excited about her story. Many of you know of her incredible ministry in Chicago and the revitalization of the parish that she did over uh, 27 years, is that right? Um, but we wanted, to, we wanted to kind of step back and just uh, allow Bishop Perry to present herself as the whole person in Christ that she is. Um, and so thank you for being with us and uh, we'll get to your questions. Yes, it's so great to have you. Um, so the first question we have is what three mementos can you share with us that tell us a little bit of a story about who you are? Yeah, um, and, and, and thank you for prompting me with that question ahead of time because I, I don't necessarily have these mementos loaded up, but um, I picked three. Um, the, the first one is, um, is a photo of my mom, Mary Jane. Um, and I don't know if you can put that up, Bill. Um, my mom, um, Mary Jane, um, Mary Jane Fahey Perry, hi mom. Um, died um, died three years ago, um, March twenty third, and um, she's she's a nurse, and she was someone who was um, fierce. Um, she um, had was so compassionate, so generous. Um, could bear a grudge, particularly if you went after her kids. Uh, my father has kind of rewritten some of her history, and I'm like, no. She, she actually had a pretty good way of, of bearing a grudge. Um, and, um, but because she was just fiercely protective of the people she loved. And the thing about my mom is my mom, um, anytime I'd be worried about something, Bill, um, I'd, be, I'd be chatting with mom and she'd say, all right, honey, I'll, I'll say a novena and it's gonna be okay. Um, very Irish Catholic family. Um, and, and my mom's piety um, was so grounded in her reality. Mm. And, and so I, I hold that as someone who, and oh my goodness, could she cook? Um, and, um, and, and, and I'm, I really miss her. Mm. I really miss her. And, um, and I know that she would have been so excited with me being elected and, and the um, ordination and consecration. I'm also kind of, don't get this the wrong way, I'm glad she's not here for this virus. She, um, she died when she was 79, um, but she had bad lungs. Um, she had COPD, um, never smoked, but she, she had stuff as a kid. And, 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 and so she, she would have been fragile in this. Mm. And so um, I'm relieved I don't have to worry about her. But 
she is, um, oh my goodness, is she, um, I aspire to her faithfulness. Mm. So yeah, so that's my first memento. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, let me just get that off and I'll put this the second one. Is that another picture? Yeah, we got another picture because I, I'm better with pictures than I am with things. And so this is a photo, um, before you put it up, Bill, it's a photo of me in the Isle of Skye, which is a, one of the Inner, Hebride, uh, inner Hebrides um, on the west coast of Scotland. And it's me in a kayak and it is me um, on a day when the winds were going about 40 knots. So that's about 40, mm, 43 miles an hour. And I was at a training session um, for the British Canoe Union to learn how to be a, um, a leader in advanced tidal waters. And so we'll show that photo. Um, and um, I have a yellow helmet on. That's how you can find me. There you go. There's my helmet. Um, and there's the water over me. And, um, and the deal was to try to go through this slot as the waves were coming in and the wind was playing against and the tide was going the other way. And, um, and for me, um, one, it was this training for this um, aspiration I had to become a five-star paddler, a, a leader in advanced tidal waters. I became the fourth woman in North America to achieve that goal. Um, wow. the, the only woman who, um, at that point, who didn't own a kayaking business, and I lived in the Midwest and had a pretty serious day job. Um, but um, for me, it is about knowing limits and knowing skills and the combination of understanding. So acceptance, this is my definition of spirituality, actually, Bill. Um, acceptance, because water will always will out. So there is this acceptance about what's going on in our world and in our life that we cannot control. Um, there is that agency that we have, the gifts and skills God's given us to do amazing, cool things and my ability in a boat. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good in a boat. I've got the ability to make it move. Um, particularly if I understand what the water's doing and I'm not trying to work against the water and, um, awe. And that to me are the three ingredients of spirituality and this awe of, of, um, what God has created in this world, this awe of Jesus, the son of God coming into the world and knowing us. So that picture for me, um, is an embodiment of both my spirituality and a tenacity to try to achieve something that was highly unlikely. You know, and I just, and I, I, I used to actually whitewater kayak and I did some sea kayaking. And so reading that water and reading your boat is hard for me not to do. And I don't want to, you know, bore people to tears, but is that, I, I would, I'm guessing that that's, is that a race where you have two tidal currents hitting each other and then creating that wave? Um, a, it's a little, yeah, actually it is. It's a very small one though, because it's just a little scary. Um, yeah. so, so it's very, it's very small, but the, the tide is, um, the tide is going in the direction of my boat. Yeah. That is pointed and the swell and the wind is coming. Well, the swell is coming in the opposite direction. 
Um, so that's almost like the eddy out of which you're coming out of is like, or this, I guess I'm, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be. I'm not in the eddy, I'm in the full. Yeah. Um, and actually I never, I never got through it. Um, the whole point was the waves kept crashing and the exercise was to hold your position. And that's where you've got your bracing right there, yes? I am bracing, yeah. Although a, a forward paddle, I always like to remember this, and you would know this, Bill, a, fo uh, a forward stroke is better than a brace. Um, yeah, yeah. So moving. So that's a paddle in the water. That's amazing. <laughs> that's a one, well, and, and, and your, your to your, the way you're pointing the boat, uh, you got you. You've definitely got the right idea in that picture because the boat is well positioned. It's going right into the wave, yep. uh, which is which says a lot about you too. Uh, you've got it. You because that's actually going straight into it is the most efficient way to to, to actually work with the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and because it's a seventeen foot long boat, and now we are getting off into yeah, yeah. We'll we'll stop after this. Yeah, but long boat so positioning it straight on is super important otherwise it's just going to get knocked all over the place it's amazing uh, straight um, on to the current and to the wave not straight through the passage that's beautiful thank you so much for indulging me um the uh and and i do want to ask follow-up questions about your mom and but, but i want to make sure you get through your mementos and then for those of you who are joining us if you go down to the base of your of your screen, you're gonna see Q and A. And what you can do is you can just press on that button and then you can actually type in a question and add, we'll get to those in a, in a little bit of time. Um, but what you can do is write that question and then uh, Meredith Skaronsky, who's here as our, our kind of host uh, uh, manager of this project, of this webinar, she will uh, be keeping in touch with that. and. Um, also, um, the uh, uh, I, some of you are saying um, some wonderful things in the chat column. We're not going to be monitoring your chat column as much as the Q and A. And then uh, we've turned off the uh, raising hand option because there are seventy-seven of you right now, with perhaps more joining us. And uh, we, that that it just it's trying to 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 pick you know <laughs> the person who's raising their hands with seventy-eight people will be just crazy. So third memento. My, my third memento is my favorite, um, in addition to scripture in the Book of Common Prayer, but um, my favorite piece of literature is John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. Unbelievable, yes. Um, and, and this book came out, oh, oh early 90s, late 80s. And, um, and it tells the story of this really tiny guy who has this he has this as a young kid in this very John Irving weird kind of way. Um, he, he has this sense that he's been called by God to do something amazing. And so for whatever reason, he practices this one repetition of moves throughout his life um, until it turns out that he is able to do that. Um, and the book, um, I, I read it um, right I read it right before I was ordained to the diaconate. Wow. Um, and, but it's, he's got um, the quotes in the flyleaf. Um, one is from um, Philippians. The other is from Fred Beekner, um, a, uh, also a Union Theological Seminary grad, an amazing writer. 
And the other one is from Leon Bloy, who I have no idea who the heck Leon Bloy is, but the Leon quote is this. Any Christian who is not a hero is a pig. Wow, that's 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 memorable. Yes. <clears throat> that's and, and here's the thing that I and I would have people read this in a leadership class that I would um teach at um Seabury Western in Bexley Seabury. And and for me it's this. I think that we are all um made in God's image and likeness and that we have amazing gifts and talents that are unique to us and that God is calling us to use in various situations. And, and that I think we need to go for it. And, and, and to say that by heaven, I, I can, by being who I am and who God is calling me to be, I can and we can together do amazing things. I love that. That's a great, I mean, and then, you know, my favorite part of that novel is the, the hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns, that he, it's just is is which I, I've never quite gotten, but I get it. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful hymn. It's a beautiful, thank you so much for that. Um, I do, um, there is a, uh, I'm gonna, if this, can we thread back to some of these, the mementos that you've uh, done? So one of the questions that comes is from a, 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 a parishioner that recently moved here from New Jersey. Um, his name is Joe Lavila, and he says, given your mother's devout Catholicism, how did you uh, come to be an Episcopalian? Yeah, let's qualify that too, shall we? My, my mother and my father, and going way back, um, all of their devout Irish Catholicism. Yeah, which, yeah, which yeah. is not going around in that, yes. No, no. and I mean, the other three last names in my family are um, Fahey, uh, Flanagan, and, um, and, and Clancy. Wow. So, yeah. These are Irish people. Um, let's put it this way. When I, when I came out as a lesbian, that was easier than yeah. the church. Um, and when I was going, when I flew home to come out to my parents, my mother said, and this was not long after I had been received into the Anglican communion. And my mom said, you know, we love you dearly and we always will. But um, you know, you've made us question absolutely everything we held dear, and quite frankly, we wish you would stop. <laughs> um, wow. And and she, but it was funny, and I just burst out laughing, and she burst out laughing, and and my parents, and my dad's still alive. Um, was at my consecration. He was he was a very happy man. Um, my parents were always very very clear that I could do they would always support me in doing whatever I wanted. And there were points in their life where they questioned it, but they always supported me. And, and they, they knew um, I had an idea that I was probably um, gay. Um, and leaving the Catholic church, particularly going to the Church of England was not easy for them. Well, particularly for Irish Catholics, I mean, of all the churches to join, the the Anglican Church is like, wow, really? Um, and it was hard for me too. But what my parents understood is that I felt a very strong call to ordain ministry, to sacramental ministry, and and to preach. Mm. And, and it was my sense and their sense as well um, that. Um, 
that if I stayed in the Roman church, I would always be second string. Um, and, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to not fulfill what I felt was my call. Mm. Now that said, my mother, I went to a Jesuit school, the college of the Holy cross in Worcester mass. And my mom used to blame the Jesuits for my downslide into Protestantism. Well, they do do that work well when they do it. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> but she was so proud and my dad is so proud. Um, so it was, it, it was, they learned, right? And, and the, day, the day after I got ordained, the night before my, my dad said, well, Mary Jane, well, we have to go to mass. And, and my mom said, oh, for God's sakes, Ray, we went to three out with the ordination was two hours and a, two and a half hours. And now we're going to and we're going to go to her eight o'clock service and her nine o'clock service and her 11 o'clock service. She said five and a half hours of church isn't enough church. I don't know what the hell is. And he's like, oh, OK. And was he a lifelong um, was his career in the Marines? Yeah, he's a retired lieutenant colonel. Um, wow. So, um, yeah. And that was very, that very much shaped and formed me. Did you move around a lot as a kid? I did. I stopped moving after I was 16 because dad got a tour with headquarters, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then he went to headquarters Marine Corps. And in between that, he went to Iwakuni, Japan. He went unaccompanied because the Marines frequently go unaccompanied. So, and then he, and then he retired. So um, but I was in three different second grades. My dad was in Vietnam. Um, no kidding. He used to, um, he was a communications guy, but he would read, he would send tapes back to us and he would read um, books to my brother and I on the tape. And, um, and he read my friend Flicka to us. And I remember him doing that and then sort of bombs coming over and him sort of interrupting the reading and then going back to it. Oh my goodness, that's that's amazing. And and he also um, did you where in the United States did you uh, primarily grow up? Did you grow up? Did you have any time abroad? Um, no, the Marines don't tend to go abroad. Yeah. Um, when they do, they send they send the person who's in the service, and they yeah. accompany. But um, I was born in San Diego at Balboa Naval Hospital, then we went to Virginia, then we went to Long Island while dad went to Vietnam, then we went to Hawaii for four years, which was super formative for me, wow. and, and then back to, back to Virginia. And then I went to college in New England and then went out back out to California in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, and then came back to New York for seminary at Union Theological. Wow, wow, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, and your mom, uh, you, you, um, she was a nurse as well. And that didn't mean, is there, is it, what, what, um, I don't want to, uh, but what, in terms of her calling, in terms of her, I mean, you, you both, you're, both of your families, both of your parents were incredibly uh, focused on service. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, my mom was super practical and super compassionate. And, and so I think that was just an amazing merger of those two ingredients to create her vocation. And, um, and, and I think that, that that notion, and dad was very clear about serving our country. And, and um, to this day, I still stand at attention for the Marine Corps hymn. Um, 
and of course the national anthem. And um, yeah, that was very much in our in our family. We 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 serve um, and um, and 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 faith. Um, I mean, every week we were at we were at mass, um, and um, and dad was. Dad was a lector and he started a, the choir at one of the churches we were at, the ukulele choir, which Excellent. I in and that was very bad. Um, and my gift for music is as bad as my father's, but you know, he mm -hmm. argued with the bishop so that he could have it because he thought the kids would find it more engaging. You know, that's amazing. I actually did stumble in on a ukulele choir once. Um, in a coffee shop, and it really is a sight to see. I just, it's uh, it's amazing. It's uh, I it I it was not it was not hypnotic, but it was it was quite there. Um, we have a couple of uh, one follow up question, which I think is really important, um, and it's from Pastor Manisha, and uh, she said, "I'm moved by your willingness to share your grief about your mother, even after three years." Could you share a, 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 the importance of mourning out loud? And then she adds, uh, her mother uh, died a year ago, which we uh, both are both of her parents. Um, one of the great privileges, I think, is to walk with Manisha. She so faithfully walked through that, um, that mourning of her mom and dad um, and while she's been with us. And so could you say a little bit more about the role of grieving uh, out loud, which is a key? I mean, I think, I think grief is cumulative, right? And, and so my hunch is, um, and, and so that it, one piles on, on top of the other. Um, and, and, you know, it's not near as um, acute as it once was, but I would say, um, Manisha, and to other folks, you might be feeling this, um, that the anniversary of my mom's death was March 23rd, right? And let's think about what's been happening since what I like to think March 12th is kind of when I woke up and everything shifted for me in the midst of this pandemic. Um, and I think the, the, my, my grief of my mom's death gets reopened and revisited at points of anniversaries. Um, put on top of that, um, the pandemic and the loss or anticipated loss of people we love. And my hunch is that's part of what, um, what my grief is, that it's so visible. Um, at other points, it might not be, but I suspect that's part of what it is. And for me, I don't want people to get consumed by my stuff because that's, that's like, ew. Um, that said, we have each and every one of us has pain. And for those of us who happen to be in leadership roles, if we're not aware of it, then I feel like it comes out sideways. And, and so that's, that's my part to be able to say um, it's here. And that's my spouse, Susan, is walking by. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you should say that because one of the things that I've been um, praying about for, um, you know, the, the reading for, of Matthew's Passion, you have those lines, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which um, many theologians have waxed many things about uh, over the centuries. 
But one of the things that I've see, I, I believe is going on there is is that's from Psalm 22, a completely normal um, uh, practice of grieving within Judaism, and it was a it's a it's a normal way to lament. And if you if you would if you were sitting Shiva, if you were doing anything as a as a good faithful Jew, you would start to lament. And so Jesus begins lamenting, but he doesn't get to finish his lament, and then he dies. And I've always wondered about that unfinished lament, you know, that um, uh, and what that means for for us, you know, the fact that Jesus Jesus died, you know, with more lamentation to go. And um, yeah, and 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 in some way ways, what when we when we do actually enter into that lamentation together, there's a sense in which we're finishing that lamentation that Christ began. No, I think I, I think you're right. And I think the profound humanity, um, that's why I love that there are four perspectives um, with our gospels, but yeah. the profound humanity of Mark and Matthew, particularly for the crucifixion is what I'm most drawn to. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a, um, I'm, I'm gonna go, um, let me see if I can pull something, just to let you know. Um, uh, someone just piped in that a prayer for Owen Meany is one of her favorites too. So I see a book club coming along. That's Barbara Prinzi is wonderful. Um, and um, we have, um, uh, there, I'm going to continue to um, move through our questions. These are all good questions, folks, that you're asking. I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of move into those as we get along. Um, because I, the one thing that I, uh, know about your story of faith is that you had a kind of radical turn even though you grew up in a, a home where church was part of what you did you also um uh had this um you had this 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 conversion or transformation in your life and and can you talk about more when was that and what what happened and how did it happen and what happened as a result of it yeah um, I, I mean, I think it was a really profound moment. I, and this is when I was in Virginia and a lot of my friends were Baptist, you know, and, you know, and they would talk about being born again. And I was like, yeah, I'm Catholic. You don't get born again. We get baptized once. We get baptized <laughs> once and we go to church and, and luckily we went to, we went to the military base and the chaplains were super good preachers. So that was really helpful. But, um, I, I went on a I went on a kids cursio, um, a happening, and I went because I lost a bet. My parents had been doing cursio, and I thought, frankly, it was a little weird. My yeah. father was hugging guys, and they were. I was just like, whoa! And I was sixteen, right? And so, so anyway, I lost this bet. It was a frisbee game, and I lost it. And so I had the deal was if I lost, I had to go on the retreat. So I'm a, a person of my word. I lost. And so I went on the retreat. And in the course of the retreat, I, I the priest came in and said, you know, how's it going? And I was 16 and I was very much had this sense of, well, it's fine, but I haven't had a mountaintop experience because for me at 16, I was pretty sure that I deserved a mountaintop experience. Right. Don't we all? Yes. Right. And, and so, and so, and so the priest talked a little bit more, Roman Catholic priest talked a little bit more. And, and then he said, um, well, have, you know, and then I said something about being afraid of God. Mm. Like, and he said, afraid of God, have you ever said that to God? And 
excuse me. And, and I said, well, no, you know, and then I kind of tooted and stuck out my hip. And I was like, no, if God knows everything, why would I have to tell God that, you know? And, and, and there was this crucifix um, across the room and I looked at it and I prayed. I said silently, I said, I am so afraid of you. And, and, and this thing happened. Um, and, and I, and cause I was, I was afraid that if God knew everything I had ever um, thought of or done or more to the point said, usually my besetting sin is, is I get myself in trouble with what I say. Um, I was pretty sure God wouldn't like me. Um, and so I said, I'm so afraid of you. And this thing happened where I felt this warmth start at my toes and go all the way up through my body. And I, I couldn't stop crying and I couldn't stop laughing. And I am pretty sure I blushed for about 45 minutes. And I know I didn't make it up because I didn't know something like that could happen. Right. That's quite, that's quite beautiful. And what happened for me in that moment is it really went from being my parents' religion to my faith. Um, and, and I, I have to say on some level, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's kind of a heck of a thing to peak spiritually at 16. Um, cause I've not had anything like that happen since I, I've come close to it when I was doing, um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Yeah. Uh, but, um, it was, it gave me this profound sense of being completely and utterly loved for who I was and who I am. And, and that is something that I go back to because I am someone who likes to do. And, and what I learned in the midst of that is that it's not about what I do, but it's who I am and how I am. And that God completely and utterly loves me. That is so beautiful. Thank you for, for saying that. Cause I, I'll, I'll tell you what interests me and this is not just curiosity. Um, you know, a lot of people, when they have large spiritual experiences, it's always some place on the body. And we, we tend not to actually talk about that connection. You know, and I think for some people, you know, when they pray, it's actually their prefrontal cortex that's firing a little bit better and they're getting, they're making better decisions for other people. They feel God in their toes and they get like, they just like, they get, you know, jazzed. Um, what, what is it? What is, where, when you pray, what, what part of you, what part of you, what part of you becomes electric? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty kinesthetic and, and so, and athletic. Um, so, um, and, and as time has gone on, I've gotten more and more attached, surprisingly, to to morning prayer and and just because i get a big kick out of the psalms um and and finding ones in there that really touch my heart um and so i like the rhythm of that and to make myself just be quiet and sit and listen and i also really pray when i'm walking um when i'm moving um when i'm in my boats um when because if I can be, if I can be physical, then it, um, it's, it feels like it's all of me. So my prayer looks, it, it's two different ways. Um, one is, is really sitting with my, my prayer book Bible 
And another is when these, you know, right now, um, um, I'm not getting out in my boat. And so right now it's taken the, my Australian shepherd out for long walks um, and putting my silly phone away mm. and, um, and being with her and reveling in her, reveling in creation, looking at all around and mm. taking in um, the holiness of the world that uh, is so holy that God came into it, which that's so beautiful. I, I, there's something I, one of the things that that's a little fold and um, that I find, you know, I, I, I identify with this is that um, I, I am now, I want, one of, one of the stories that I, I really like about you is that when you're, when you're, uh, when you're, you had a, an opening at youth minister, you became the youth minister as the rector. <laughs> and, uh, and this and this year we had an opening and it's not I have wonderful support uh, so I have a children's minister and a youth minister but my area of responsibility is now children and youth and so that's forcing me to get in touch with both my own um, my own early faith life uh, which was had a very similar kind of experience to yours and I'm spending my time with kids which is you know just so delightfully humiliating and fun um, and, uh, and, and, and discovering that. And I'm wondering when you were the youth minister again, how, how much did that, that 16 year old young woman who saw the cross and felt both the shame and the grace yeah. of God, uh, how, how, how much did that, how much did you like access that to like do your ministry? Well, now, and to be fair, um, I was not in charge of it. Um, okay. Same, same thing. Yeah. Hillary Waldron, um, who was seven years old when I met her, who is 35 now at the congregation I used to um, pastor, um, Hillary, Hillary ran it, and, and Hillary said, um, Hillary said, um, you know, it was so lame when you ran it when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. You could do a better job than you did. Now, to be fair, Bill, I had three kids. I had three kids. I, I was I was actually doing an okay job, but she's and she's still there. So I kind of feel like I didn't completely blow it. Yeah. But what it was wonderful is is the kids. Um, Hillary set the rules, and the kids would look to me to see how I was gonna like like act out a little bit. Um, and, and 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 it was the same with the with our young kids at our church school. Is they'd be like somebody they once were having an argument and the teenagers were having a similar argument they're like who's in charge is miss polly in charge or is bonnie in charge and they're like oh no miss polly's in charge um and then it's like well hillary or bonnie they're like oh it's hillary um and and i think not that i was the kid's friends because i wasn't i was the kid's priest um but but i was the one who would teach them because we had a section where kids would do homework and I was one of the ones who would um, teach the kids how to do a book report on a book you hadn't read. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's a trick. I was like, these are real life skills, kids. Let's work on this. And, and so it's like, you read the first chapter, you read the last chapter um, and you read an obscure chapter in between and make sure you quote the obscure chapter in between. And, and then, right. and, 
we would do goofy things like that. I would, and you know, they would periodically say they needed to annotate a book. And so I would go through and, and write goofy things in it. And, and the book would get passed down from kid to kid in the family. Like, oh, beautiful. Doing the same. Um, so it was kind of that, but it, I think it was also, um, for me, what I know is there were priests and teachers who took me completely and utterly seriously. And all I wanted to do with those kids was to take them seriously. That's beautiful. Um, I, I, we have so many good questions for you, but I want to take a few more time, a little more time just to flesh out who you are as a Christian and who you are as a, as a child of God, um, as well as our leader, just because from my perspective, this has been, uh, whenever you're in these things, there's a kind of crucible that you're immediately placed in. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward and I know that the congregation is looking forward to continuing to get to know you as a whole person. And, um, so the one to pick up on that a little bit, uh, you know, one of the things you put is, uh, well, I think you've done kayaking a little bit. Let's we, even though that was exciting, you and I got into like technical stuff and it got boring. So let's go to mentors, picking up on that. Um, you were saying that you had people who took, you took them seriously because people had taken you seriously and that was the key. Who were your mentors inside and outside the church? Yeah. Um, I, um, I had a couple of writing teachers um, in high school, Miss um, Rose and Mr. Crowley, um, both really, took my writing seriously and, and tore it apart. And, and that was very, very, very helpful um, because I knew that they took me seriously enough to say, you could do better. You mm -hmm. could do better. Um, and, and I really, really valued that. Um, and I think um, if, if I think in, 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 and, and then when I get to, to the Episcopal church, um, um, the first person I worked for, um, as a seminarian, um, uh, so, uh, a woman by the name of Lucinda Laird. I don't know if you know sure. her. Sure. Yes. She's at the cathedral. Yes. Yeah. She's at the cathedral in um, Paris. So I was her first seminarian and she became a brand new rector at St. Mark's in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. And, 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 and she kind of plotted out how I as a Roman Catholic could, could like, okay, you're going to work here for a year. We'll get a grant to pay for this. And Tracy Lynn can help you do this. And then, um, and then we'll get you a job because I think Mark Beckwith is going to be looking for someone to work with him. And so we'll move that along. And then the next thing you know, um, um, she was, she was really, Lucinda was really working with me and, and then she's, then, um, life continued on and we knew that, um, Richard Schimpfke, who, um, was the rector of Christ Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, where I was ordained, um, and he later became the Bishop of El Camino Real. Um, Richard was, Richard had this vision of what church could be, and um, and I went from a church that was um, 
very, very mixed. Um, uh, it was like 50-50 um, African-American and Anglo. Um, it was very liberal. Um, and then I went to Christchurch Ridgewood, which was much more white, um, much more conservative. And, and what I learned with Richard is nothing mattered about people's politics. What mattered was the manner in which they lived out the gospel. And if you set the standard high and invited people to bring their whole selves to something, it was amazing how you could access change with the resources that people brought. And mm. I that that is not that dissimilar to Cranbrook. No, it's exactly, yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful, uh, that the last five years have been such a, a time of transformation here. Um, and, and not because it, it, it just happened to kind of catalyze, you know, obviously we had incredible people before that started um, a major shift in things. Uh, obviously, Beth Taylor did incredible work. And obviously, you know, Gary Hall, even though he was here very briefly, did incredible work. Uh, but yeah, there's been something about that fullness of the, of the witness here that makes me uh, every day humbled to be the rector. There's um, what my time at Christ Church did, what it taught me, it always gave me a model for what a church filled with resources and engaged, compelling, strong leaders, lay leaders, what it could look like. And that's what I brought with me to um, my time at All Saints in Chicago. I had this image of what a church could be. And I continually hearken back to both the diversity that I experienced at St. Mark's in Teaneck, New Jersey, with Lucinda and her ability to preach like you read about it, best preacher I know. And that got into my psyche. And then um, how Christchurch Ridgewood worked out its life. Um, so that super, super important um, for me. Um, and, and then I was at Christchurch Hackensack um, where Mark Beckwith, I was Mark Beckwith, who is now the retired Bishop of Newark. I was Mark's first assistant. Wow. Uh, so I, and, and he had this amazing not-for-profit, the Interreligious Fellowship um, for the Homeless of Bergen County, and I was the volunteer coordinator. And, and, and each of those folks taught me how um, different aspects of ministry that I that later really came into play with my work um, at All Saints in Chicago. Um, and I think the other person, um, Tracy Lind, who's the retired dean of the cathedral in Cleveland, um, taught me about community organizing and, and the Industrial Areas Foundation and and understanding how we take time to find out what people's passions are, what their gifts and talents are, yeah. and stop trying to funnel people into doing the things that church needs them to do, but rather to create ministries around their gifts and talents, because these are the people God has gifted us with. And to try to slot them into something else is to, is, is to in fact, practice idolatry. Um, and so that, um, that to me, um, those are the people who shape me in the church, I'm going to briefly segue uh, a mentor outside of the church, 
And that is my friend, um, Roland William, uh, Roland uh, Wolven, who is a retired special forces um, uh, colonel in um, the SAS in the UK and my kayaking mentor. And, and here's the thing um, about, about sea kayaking in advanced tidal waters. You're continually trying to have the large picture. Um, people, the water is, can be dangerous. You wanna bring people to a place where they can experience that intensity but also never and stretch them, but never go beyond your own limitations because people's lives literally are at risk. And when someone does come out of a boat, something happens, the first thing you do is stop. Mm. And, and you stop and you assess, you formulate a plan, you execute it, and then you review it. It's called safer. Stop, assess formulate, execute, review, and time and time again, Bill, and particularly in the midst of this, the beginning of my episcopate, that is played through my mind. Um, in a crisis, how do we lead? How do I lead? How do I call forth leadership in people so that you're not stymieing people because that takes their agency away? Right. But rather calling that forth. But part of that is, is to have the as best as as I can um, prayerfully but to have to have a vision of of of, of what's happening and, mm -hmm. and and to know that I don't I don't have it all so I need other people's perspectives um, that's part of the assessing you figure the plan out you execute it and is it working that is so rich, and I really thank you for that. And I, I look forward to getting to know you better. I did some um, uh, Industrial Areas Foundation work in New York City um, over two different decades, and uh, it's it's so uh, amazing to see how it has changed as a practice, um, uh, as well as how you know it has those those basic insights. So I'm looking forward. I want to. I I know my congregation well enough. I have 17 questions. Better get um, we better go to them. Uh, I love them all. Um, I, I'm going to try to, um, I, I think the, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, boil some of these down. Um, I think we did, I think we've done a, a, an okay, um, I, I think we've done an okay job talking a little bit about your, your past parish, a little bit. We've talked about some of that. Um, the, um, I, I, I'm going to, this is from a new, uh, there's two, two, two new parishioners, uh, uh, beautiful, wonderful people, uh, Jim Trask and John Buell, uh, who's, uh, speaking, John is speaking on behalf of his, um, his husband. And then Jim is speaking also to LGBTQ um, issues, and and um, I'm going to just read them both. And I and I'll, I you you've got a I know you've got the game. You can handle this. Um, so Jim's question is: We think of ourselves as welcoming to the LGBTQ community, but how can we encourage closer connections and more involvement, particularly with the BTQ people? That's Jim's question. 
so the bisexual, trans, and queer communities. And then John is asking, Tim and I had the chance to meet Bishop Gene Robinson and learn of the many difficulties he experienced as a gay bishop. Have you had similar experiences? Let, let's, I'll start with the, the last one first. Um, um, Gene Robinson and I were both ordained in the same parish um, at Christchurch Ridgewood. Um, with Richard Chimkey. So we were both Richard Chimkey's um, assistants. I, I think he might have been Richard's, one of Richard's first, and I was Richard's last. Um, so, um, and I, um, I have not, because Gene Robinson really took a lot of it on the head. Um, yeah. I have not. I, I've, this is, I've been at this in a very short time, and, um, but I've not. People have been unfailingly gracious. People have been incredibly welcoming of my spouse, Susan. Um, and, and I think it speaks to, um, in many ways, how our world has um, progressed and, and changed. And what I am very aware of, I did a lot of work to move us along after um, Jean Robinson's um, consecration and all the backlash that happened with that. Mm. <coughs> and, and, and did a lot of international work to facilitate some of those changes. But um, I have not, and I've been blessed. Mm. Um, and in terms of bisexual, transgender, queer folks, in, in many ways, when we're using that language, um, excuse me, I'm gonna cough. Please. And just so people know and, uh, who are following along, um, Bishop has had this cough since like her consecration. This is not a nothing. This is not a worrying cough at all. This is the cough I got February 9th after my consecration. Yeah. And yes, thank you for saying that. Um, now, um, I, I think when we say bisexual, transgender, queer, in many ways, um, people don't, the folks who say queer, they're either like me and they've gotten tired of the alphabet soup or they tend to be younger. And also to understand that that many folks are kind of, that everything's kind of gender fluid, and um, and to try to have these narrow categories is to really try to um, categorize people rather than to understand and to know people. And I think how we become more accepting is to listen. Um, one of the things we did in my previous context um, at All Saints on November uh, 18th, we had a Trans Day of Remembrance service. Mm -hmm. uh, an enormous number of trans people um, have um, uh, been killed, particularly trans people of color, um, and particularly uh, folks who are trans um, male to female. Um, and the hatred, the fear, the violence against that, um, uh, uh, those children of God is, is kind of stunning. And, and so part of what we wanted to do with the Trans Day of Remembrance was to take our liturgy and, and, and to honor that loss and, and to make it a, a, a ministry of our congregation to, in a way that the Episcopal Church does, to liturgically welcome people, to liturgically honor people, and to liturgically um, memorialize the pain and sadness um, 
I'm so I'm so grateful you say that because the last two years um, we took some steps forward with uh, trans acceptance. We've had members of the congregation who are trans, um, and and we've been blessed by them. Uh, and and we also had uh, Paula Stone Williams, who is a trans uh, 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 person who is an incredible. She used to run the largest uh, parachurch organization in the in the Pentecostal world and truly one of the most brilliant women I know and she can preach like she is like she, and yeah. so I was like as long as she can preach I think we're going to be fine you know like and she was unbelievable in her sermon um and then we had uh Kate Malin um who is in uh, Rye New York and she has a uh, uh, twin uh trans daughters and she's a great preacher. So we had her uh, during this time to have some conversation about it uh, for, for trans and non-binary people. And, um, you know, my, my daughter identifies as non-binary. And, um, and it's a, it's a, it is something I, I think it would be wonderful for us to, to continue to, um, to provide that terrain uh, in that context, in a liturgical context. And, I, you know, it'd be wonderful. I don't want to, I promised you I would not do this, but I would love to have you involved. I would, I would be absolutely honored and delighted to do that. When I, when I left All Saints, we had, um, I think more than 15 folks who happened to be trans. Um, and it, 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 and it took me as a lesbian, it took me a chunk of change to understand I was not fast and it, it took me a while to understand and then I suddenly I got it mm. and, and um and it made all all the difference in the world to me and 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 how we and what is so was so much fun was that um People got to be who they were and, and they would come and, and several people came out in the time of their being at All Saints and, and it was lovely. Um, it was, I saw someone said, what's your definition of resurrection? Here's a resurrection story. That's a resurrection story. A another resurrection story is at general convention, the Chicago consultation, this group I started, we were working on supporting trans legislation. But more importantly, we had um, from congregation in Fayetteville in Arkansas uh, was their St. Paul's and one of their families came and told the story during a luncheon of the woman told the story of her, um, of her trans child. And, and they were there just telling the story. And I had invited a bunch of people and some of whom were from Alabama because I had had this ongoing conversation with my friends from Alabama. And off they went and, and at convention, when the resolution came up to support uh, everybody regardless, including trans folks for ordination, um, this Evan Gardner, who um, had been fairly conservative in his, in his speaking at, at um, at general convention stood up and and you know and he said Gardner from Alabama and you could hear people go mm. and he said you know I was at a I was at a luncheon the other day and I heard the story of a family 
and their um, journey with their trans child. And he said, and this is what I can tell you, I stand in favor of this resolution because I want my church to practice resurrection. Mm. We are, I don't think we are ever, um, I don't think we are ever taken away from, I don't think we lose anything when we expand our circle to welcome people. Um, we're not deluded. We are um, enriched and enlivened. Um, so, and if we listen, then my experience is if I listen, I learn. Hmm. That's really, really helpful. And it's, it's um, you know, we find ourselves to these things in different ways, right? It's not um, often not of our choosing and often moments that surprise us. And, you know, for, uh, I, I, you know, for, for, for me, it was uh, when, when you have a child who you uh, love, you, you have a very different view of things and a different window into things. Um, and, um, and at the same time, you, I, when I taught at general seminary, I, there was a, a bakery across the street where I did my, my, my prep uh, for classes. Cause I, I would get lonely in my office. And so it was entire, it was the entire um, staff, you know, was, was uh, gender nonconforming. And, and all of them had questions that were spiritual or even relationships with God because they had to believe in something they could not see about themselves. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, let's, I'm going to get through some of these questions. These are so great. And I, I feel like, um, go ahead. I'll be back. No worries. We're going to keep, I'm going to just go and I'm going to start to name some of these. So I'm going to, uh, Jim Trask, I think you've given your question. And John Buell, you've given your question. I think Denise Cruz, you said, what does practicing resurrection mean to you? I think we got that. I'm going to just take that. Um, uh, I think John Keck, you have a question about, do you think the Catholic Church will allow women to be priests and priests to marry? I think, I think we're all going to just take a rest from that question. I love you to death, John Keck, but I just, uh, that's another, that's another, another church's business. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah, sooner or later. Um, I think I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to go into um, a couple of questions that I'll bundle. And um, one of them is, is uh, anonymous. Um, what were your first thoughts about serving in the city of Detroit? Which that mean by good, 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 thank God they collect, they cloaked their identity, you know? Um, I am. Um... The city of Detroit is one of the reasons that I was very clear that I wanted to, to be the Bishop of Michigan. Um, and, and Bill, you've, you've heard me say this, but I mean, I ran for Bishop twice before and then I stopped running for 10 years. Um, and I stopped running because I said, one, I, I'm not gonna do that to my congregation anymore. And two, the only place that I will run again is if Wendell Gibbs ever retires, I will run in Michigan. Um, and I will run in Michigan for several reasons. Um, one, it has a lot of water. Um, and that was another one of the questions because I, um, Lake Huron and Lake Michigan um, and the Detroit River, um, I've been paddling and teaching in the Detroit River for 10 years. The company that sponsors, one of the companies that sponsors me is in Wyandotte and that's where I get my boat. Um, 
So, and it's an amazing high-end British boat. Um, but the other pieces, I love, um, I, I, the history of Detroit to me is so compelling. And um, the issue of race, the issue of poverty, the issue of white flight, mm. uh, the issue of um, the reality of, of more um, investment in it now, and that the, the city is beginning to rise, but, this, but the investment is happening in midtown and downtown. Um, and where is it happening in the neighborhoods? And, and that gap between them, and what is the role of the church in that? And how do we marshal our resources between places like Bloomfield Hills and Cranbrook and Birmingham um, and Detroit and Pontiac? And, and, and we have people of faith in all of those places. And how do we marshal those resources, that power, that Christian longing for something more? How do we enact it? And for me, that seemed so compelling to be able to work with that and then and then couple in um, the literally kind of rural aspects of this diocese, that to me sounded so compelling and so challenging. Mm. That, um, so for me, I looked at Detroit and I thought, all right, what can I learn? And, and what is it we might be able to do? Um, but first and foremost, how do I listen? What can I learn? That is so, that's so beautiful. I thank you so much for doing it. I didn't mean to cut you off, but for, I, I tend to like grunt or, or, or anytime I go, hmm, it just pops over to me. So I apologize for that. I'll try to control myself. The, uh, the, uh, uh, that there's another follow-up to that, um, that, you know, that, that when you say listen and learn and um, they're, they're, this is, I don't, I'm not sure, I want to make sure that you understand that our job tonight is really to sit back and just see the whole person. I, I was, my, my, my deepest hope for this is this would actually be a refreshing moment for you and not a moment where you feel like you have to like, you know, chart out your first hundred days as a president, you know, kind of thing. Well, first hundred days have been fairly entertaining, let me tell you. Yes. So what, what, what does excite you uh, is, so it's, it's kind of being in those contradictions. Is that what you're saying? Being in the contradictions is what gets you excited? I think being in the gap and trying to figure out how to bridge the chasms. Hmm. I, I think of Christianity, um, and I, I saw something there, someone was asking the question about the world is holy, is that why God came into it? And um, I think Christianity is about being in this world and, and that, um, and honoring this world and not saying it's about the next, um, that Jesus came into this world. And, um, and I think Christianity at its best is about um, living our life and following Jesus Christ, the son of God, um, in such a way that we bridge the chasms of, um, of sin in our world um, and, and, and how we, um, how we reckon that and, and, and name it and own it. And, and then how do we address it? 
And I, I think that's what Christianity calls us to do in this world now. That is so uh, spot on. Um, and, and that's such a beautiful way of looking at it. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm, that is so profound that I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw some, some less profound things, and then we'll go back to it because we're all gonna like let that sink into our heads. So some really important questions. Which is better, the Atlantic or the Pacific to paddle in? I've not spent near as much time paddling in the Pacific. I surfed in Hawaii as a kid. So that is where my profound love of all things waves come from and my kind of intuitive understanding of them. So paddling the Pacific on the, on, on the, on the West Coast, whoa, that's, you get 19 second periods there. I mean, so between, I'm getting geeky, between um, the, the, the top of a wave to another top of a wave, 19 seconds, it, it means it's a massive wave that has come from very far away. Um, that's a lot of energy to pummel a boat. Um, so I've had far less experience in the Pacific. I'm also cautious. The Atlantic, that said, can also be quite something. I've spent more time there and I have a deep abiding love of, um, of the United Kingdom for its paddling because of the nooks and crannies that cause the tides and how the tides have to go around it, which make for tide races, which you were talking about, which makes for white water on the ocean. And you get far more tide races in the UK, in the Atlantic, than you get in the Pacific. That is cool. Yes. I mean, I'm, I, this could, we, could, we could go too far into this because... <laughs> Yes, I was. That is that is cool. I like that. This is that's exciting. Um, Great, but I have paddled out to the island where Christianity came into Scotland. So Iona. No, um, it it came in to um, um, Ilachnome, and then went to Iona. Very cool. And it's all in the same neighborhood. But Elak Noam is actually where Columba would go to get when he got overrun by everybody in Iona. And um, St. Columba's mother is buried in Elak Noam. Yeah, he, he had quite a quite an episcopate. I mean, <laughs> where occasionally he had to kind of just like flee. <laughs> just, I, I like that idea. I mean, but you know, I mean, it's, I mean, theoretically, like it'd be someone else having it, right? <laughs> um, some another another question just just pop it we're just like the, what's the constant the chicago consultation doing now that it's not doing much it's not doing much right now um we in many ways we met all of our goals um or at least many many of them um so right now it's not doing much and then we have a couple of excitedness this is like i just think these are like little like yay bishop um uh I, hi, Bishop. I'm Catholic and Episcopalian, um, and find the balance uh, God-given uh, in a mystery as well. So he finds the balance between being both Catholic and Episcopalian. It's dual citizenship. Loves it. Another is from our senior warden, who says, right on point about letting people be their best selves, rising to what God calls them to be, liberal conservative aside. So he liked that. Thumbs up. Um, and then... Um, you did mention, you answered John Keck's wonderful question about the world is so holy that God came into it. So we're, we're just knocking these down. Um, and then another little fan, some fan stuff. 
Um, this is from Denise Cruz, who's wonderful in our, in our uh, healing prayer ministry. Um, thank you for your time and sharing so much of yourself. You seem to be a warm, genuine, spiritually connecting person, sending virtual hugs with little prayer hands. Okay, that is amazing. Um, I'm gonna, uh, I've already quoted this, this senior warden. He won't be upset. I, he just, he wanted to, wanted some, you know, nuts and bolts, which I, I think we, we've been, we've been covering that. That was uh, way back at 734. Um, we've got a, and then we have a couple of questions about how you were called to your first parish and what that was like for you. Um, you know, that, that, that seems to be moving a little deeper as to how you, how did you find, you know, because, because, you know, the people you, you mentioned people who are, in my mind are some of the most profound leaders in the church. And they weren't the people that had like the headlines so much like Tracy Lind, in my opinion, um, is truly one of the, 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 the most brilliant, um, uh, pastors in, 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 and, I, I wish, I wish, uh, even though she has shared a lot and done a lot, I don't think we've gotten everything out of her that she could share about how to lead a congregation. And so you, you, you had great um, sense of who could do this kind of stuff, but, but you picked a small parish and you stayed for a long time, um, particularly for someone who like, if Lucinda Laird is like telling you about your career I mean, my God, you must have had a, like a million people say to you like, okay, you've been here 10 years. I mean, they can't ask you to stay any longer, right? So why did you go? Why did you stay? Yeah. So, well, and for one thing, it wasn't my first parish. It was my fourth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the funny part. Um, but um, I stayed because it continued to be incredibly compelling and it kept growing. I mean, we started with 30 on a Sunday and um, when, you know, when I left our, our high Sundays were 700 um, and we were doing regularly a normal Sunday would be 270, 280. And we had a huge community kitchen and food pantry, our not-for-profit where we served 250 of our guests um, every Tuesday night, 125 family style sit down meal and groceries and then another 150, 180 groceries. Um, so it was a really, it had a lot of different things going. It had incredible lay leaders, just folks who just, who, who got it and who could come up with these amazing ideas. And I was like, great, go find four people, come back and let, and then we can make this thing go. Um, so it was continually challenging me and, um, and I, I confess, um, I was in a couple of searches at various points. Um, and, you know, I ran for bishop a couple of times and then stopped. But I was in a couple of um, cathedral searches or super big churches in New York searches. Um, and um, would not get called, I think mostly because I think I'm supposed to be here. Um, but I, um, I don't think I was what, I don't think they felt like I fit quite their mold. Yeah. And what I loved about All Saints is the mold kept changing and shifting 
and I kept being able to grow. And there was never this presumed, this is how it has to be. Um, it was like, okay, now we've done it this and how are we gonna think about that? Well, let's keep working on that. And every year for Holy Week, we had 14 services in Holy Week and, and a huge group of people who would put them on and various people from the staff would, would staff them, but everybody else was, was creating these services and, and, and be like, okay, well, we've really got Monday, Thursday wrapped up, so we don't have to work on that this year, but let's rework Good Friday. Let's rework um, the Easter vigil. And, and it, was, it was just compelling with super fun, smart, engaged people who was like, okay, well, let's look at race. What are we gonna do about that? And how are we gonna address that? And how are, how are we gonna address the inequities in our city? And, and what are we doing with gun violence? And, and, and this was all stuff people came and brought to me. Um, it's, so, it's so interesting you should say that because um, some advice that I got, the, thing, the two things that you're saying to me that I think are really important about what you bring to the, 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 the calling that you have now is um, I, do think, I do think you break the mold in many ways. Um, I think you break the mold by being uh, incredibly transparent and direct. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes, and this is not a comment about the previous bishop, this is just a comment about bishops in general. Um, they, 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 they often hide behind the role so much that you can never really actually get to the real person because they they're and, and probably probably maybe that's part of it is just self-protection you know i don't want to you know i'm not trying to to complain but but you have a completely different kinetic style to leadership than most bishops and then the second thing i see um and this is something that andy doyle said to me who is my best friend from seminary and of course he's far more you know uh, successful i mean just wonderful you know, runs a huge, you know, church, diocese. And, but he said to me once when I was, I was calling him for some phone therapy, um, he said, you know, the rectors that are worth their weight in gold are the ones whose personalities change as they are in the position. Can you, and so is that, I mean, is that, both of those things seem to get what you're trying to say. Is that fair? No, I think so. I mean, I don't think I can comment on on how bishops are or how I am as one. I've been doing it five weeks. Um, at, at, I mean, since November, but you know, five weeks. So um, we'll, we'll see, right? Who knows? Um, but I think, I think a good, I think an amazing rector is someone who is completely committed to continually growing. I think you're right on that. I think is someone who's committed to being um, um, prayerful, is someone who is committed to having um, a high intellectual humility, um, meaning that, um, that they can't think they know it because this is the thing that gets people out in the wilderness in trouble is that, oh I, oh, I know what this is. I've done this before. And then they just lead out of their past instead of what they're seeing now and what the future is. And so there has to be this intellectual humility to continually be open to what can I learn now? What is, what is this teaching me 
now. Um, if you, you think about the guy, um, the guy who learned, landed the airplane on the Hudson River. Um, Shelley, yes. Right, and so his, Scully, Scully. Scully, Scully, sorry, yeah. And his whole motto, the stuff I've read about him, is that every single flight he would say to himself, this is all going to be different. What am I going to learn now? What am I going to learn this time? And so for me, I think a good rector, one, you stay as long as you have something to learn and you have something to give. When one of those shifts, it's time to leave. But I think many of us leave too soon. I don't think people ought to stay 27 years. That's kind of absurd, and I did, and, and, and it worked, and it was great. But I don't, I don't think that's the deal. But I do think people need to be able to reinvent themselves at least once. Mm. And, and I think that's over a 14-year period. And I think the seven-year itch is real. And I think if we can reinvent ourselves at least once, then we have the ability to learn from our folks and to take a congregation um, to real transformation. Uh, I mean, that's what the literature says. And, and so that's one of the things that I look for folks is one, the ability to be steadfast. Um, it's kind of Benedictine, right? That you're steadfast um, and that you're always kind of discerning and listening for God. Um, and, um, yeah, so what can I learn and how do I stay? And probably they should be in therapy. Um, yeah. I've, I've spent most of my life in therapy. Maybe that's just because I'm weird, right? But Oh, no, no. It's... Oh, no, to be fair, I am. But, um, but I think to, to be, have a commitment to working on ourselves, both spiritually but emotionally, is super important. Well, check on every box, Bishop. So I'm... <laughs> I've got you. Um, the um, I there I we we are. It's at it's uh, eight twenty three, and I want to move back to the to the challenging. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm getting rid of the, the 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 questions around coming to. We're gonna hear more about your experience, obviously in Chicago. Um, there's a couple here um, that have come up. Um, I'm gonna go. Um, the um, uh, I, I, the one that I'm gonna um, I'm gonna focus on. There's two that have have talked a bit about the current pandemic, and um, uh, you know one 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 question comes from Barry Lawler, and he has just came back from Florida, and he's a little bit upset about the fact that we can't get Eucharist in a more um, uh, in a safe way, and, and we worked through that a little bit. Um, we're feasting on the word uh, 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 this, this, this time. Uh, another is uh, from Hunter Torres, um, and I'm going to just read her um, because I think this is a really powerful question. And yeah. it picks up on what Leslie McNamara, another former senior warden and wonderful therapist, has, has written. Um, At some point this evening, among all the prayers you may lead us in, would you please include the souls, many unknown, who have had to die alone in the midst of this pandemic and the grieving families and friends, um, especially Cliff, of those who've recently died due to C-19 and the adult children, especially Tim, who yearn but cannot be with their quarantine aging parents and the individuals, especially Megan, who are sick and awaiting test results and the children who may not understand what is happening, but sense the anxiety and distress in their world. 
Thank you for being with us tonight and sharing your beautiful self with such gracious intimacy and love. And um, that is a that is a prayer that we'll 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 offer in in a probably in about three minutes. Yeah. But but one of the things is is it's it's such an unfair thing to say. And I and I, I but I trust that you'll. Um, uh, one of the questions that a lot of uh, spirituality asks us to do, a lot of ethics asks us to do, is like, what is God doing? Um, and I'm wondering if you had any uh, any inkling, and no, no one is going to hold you to this answer. Um, but but as we're going through this incredible trauma and this pain and this this um, this experience, um, can you can you speak a little bit about that? <coughs> and again, I've had the cough forever. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. Um, I, I, I know that, I know that um, God in the person of Jesus is weeping. Um, I think just simply um, uh, Cliff and Tim and Megan is, is just proof enough. Um, and, and this is part of what I said on my, my sermon this past week is that I didn't really rush to the Lazarus part um, uh, because I'm not seeing anybody being pulled out of the tomb right now. Um, I, I stayed with Jesus weeping because I think that's what Jesus is doing. Um, are there good things coming out of this? Probably, you know, are we seeing amazing aspects of people's humanity? Yes, we are. Are we, are we seeing people come together in a polarized nation? In some places, absolutely. Um, and so amazing gifts. Are we watching heroes, absolute heroes in our, um, our people who work at the grocery store, our people who work in the pharmacy, um, our physicians, our nurses, the transport people, the respiratory therapists, the LPNs, um, uh, the nurses aides, all of those folks, amazing. So I think that's all happening. Um, and so we're seeing really goodness and I can see the holy in that and I can see God at work at that. Um, what theologically, what am I to learn from this pandemic? Um, and where is God in that? I think, I, think God is, um, I think God is on the cross. Um, and, um, and, I think Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and I think if Jesus can say it, so can we. That's a beautiful um, thing. And you know, I, I, um, I do funny things with art. And um, one uh, painting I, I blew up, it's from uh, Titian that he did in um, 1575, 76. He, he, was, he was in Venice. And he was dying of the of the plague. The plague had come to Venice, and he um, and he he did this picture that's at his um, at his graveside. And uh, what's amazing to me, and I don't think you recognize this, uh, when, and, you know, I, when I saw this in Venice a years ago, he this this is the Pietà. It looks like the Pietà. Yeah, and Jesus is actually a plague victim. There's no. There's no wounds, but is the pallor of 
of his skin is clearly a marking of bubonic plague. And this is Titian praying to Jesus the, who, has, who has borne our diseases. And, uh, and, and what's funny is not, a lot of art historians miss that until it's, you don't see that, that, that message in it until you actually are in a pandemic. You know, it, and then it comes alive because that's that's what he's he's finding a Christ who is who is bearing our disease. Um, we should, on that note, I know there's some other things that you all have asked. I want to thank all of you. I um, the um, uh, there there's and 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 uh, there are other questions, but we're gonna. I think we should probably move towards prayer, if that's okay with you, unless you want to, is there anything you want to say before we move to prayer? Yeah. Um, there's Pam Bingham has a question. Yeah. Facing financial challenges for the future and what should we be doing? Um, one of the things I was asking our staff to look at today is, um, is to find um, what monies we have um, that we could use as a matching, um, as a matching grant, uh, a, a match. Um, I would love to see the Diocese of Michigan um, lay out um, at, with the with the um, using diocesan funds matching up to twenty five thousand dollars. I would love to see us put together fifty thousand dollars and make a significant um, medical supply purchase. Um, I don't know exactly what it would be, um, but part of what we were looking at today is, yeah, I'm worried about our future of our institution and our congregations, but first and foremost, I am concerned about um, the people um, who are dying and the people who are trying, who are risking their lives to save them. And what I want us to do more than anything is I want us to make a significant financial chunk in that to buy, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know, $50,000, it, you know, it, it buys a lot of masks. Um, $50,000 buys a lot of protection, uh, PPE. Um, I don't think it buys that many ventilators, but it could buy a chunk. Um, and I just wonder like, what, what if we did do that in the midst of us worried about ourselves, but that first and foremost, we need to worry about something else. Um, and it is not the institution's viability. It is the life uh, and breath, literally, of our sisters and brothers. Um, well, we're, we're going to match you. So why don't we make it a $50,000 matching grant? We'll give you $25,000. Okay. So, and then we match up to 50, and then we, right. make, and then we make a real difference. Because this is what... Well, we actually, no, we, if we say 50 matching, we'll make 100. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. Right. But so that, but thank you. Because this is what I am thinking is this is how we say that we are not, yeah, we're worried about ourselves, but oh, for heaven's sakes, let's live it. Let's, let's make the difference. Let's lead and say, this is how we use our gifts from all corners of our diocese to make a difference. Because we are, Michigan is fast on its way to becoming the hot, the epicenter. Yeah. No, it is, and and I and I just want to say to my parish leadership, the vestry, my wardens. Of course, I need your 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 help on that too, and I apologize for just jumping in there, but I know you're behind me, and uh, well, they might be behind you. Yes, let's just hope. 
um, but I believe they are. I believe they are because this, uh, that's, um, you know, when we, when the Flint water crisis happened, um, we had presiding Bishop Curry was coming to visit the parish and we raised in three weeks time, $30,000 uh, and, um, and, and we funneled it through the presiding bishops um, uh, fund for um, world relief and, and, and stepped into a gap because yeah. they were trying to change and shift funds to Flint. And uh, that was one of the most rewarding things that we've done as a congregation. And, and I know that, that we could find a way to, to make that happen as well to, to, because I, I think, you know, the thing with matching gifts and this is not to, to show our cards with fundraising, but if you say you'll match up to 50, you almost always will give, you know, raise a lot more and that will be a really important thing. Yep. So, and that would be a wonderful way for us to support you uh, in your first few um, days um, and, and doing the great leadership you are. Um, I want to, we should end with uh, a prayer. Um, and the one thing last night, we were interviewing some people. Um, I was with a group of, of um, because of this capital project that we're still planning. And uh, I just asked people to uh, name if they had anybody in that was touched by this disease and it was about six of us and and at least four people one person had passed away and one people one person four three people were were sick so folks if you can just type some names into your chat of, of people you're praying for so i'm praying for rebecca and i'm praying for a dj and I'm praying for uh, uh, a few others that I have written over here that have called me today to let me know. And if you could just type right over here in the chat area and we'll, we'll just see, we'll start to do that. Um, uh, and then if, if that's okay, uh, if Bishop, you could just uh, open us in prayer and we can just, um, oh, and Mike Davis, who's a parishioner, who's uh, just came, just we just heard. Um, if we could, yeah, and, and uh, Karen, DJ, Mike, Marilyn, and Larry, if you open us in prayer, and then can we just, we'll just go through, uh, and then we'll also pray for the doctors and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Ever-living God, in the midst of um, disease and sadness and death, we need you. We long for you. We need to feel your healing presence. And in this night, we remember all of the folks who have died, um, who we don't know. And, and, and they have perished. Um, and regardless of what we believe happens afterwards, um, their leaving this life is, is, is a loss that is hard to reckon. We remember all of those who are um, not able to be with their aging families. Um, and we remember the folks who are desperately, desperately hoping to be well. We remember first, we remember Sue and Carolyn and Mike Davis and Megan and Laura and Akram for all of our doctors, for our nurses, for our LPNs, for our, our um, CNAs, for our respiratory therapists, for the folks who are transporting, for the people who are taking folks in their taxi cabs um, to 
um, the um, uh, to the field um, to the um, the the old state um, uh, fair field um, to be tested. Folks who are risking doing that for the people in our grocery stores who are working for the Berg family. Oh my goodness, who have lost both their parents, mm. George for Blaine, for Stephen and Heather Bollinger, for Pam and Natalie, for Danny, for Bart and Eddie, for all the folks who are vulnerable and elderly, our loved ones, the ones we've never met, for Jerry and Colleen, who are a couple with COVID, for Rebecca and David, for Tim's dad, for Manny and Elizabeth, for Michelle, for all of the children and how they deal with the anxiety that is floating in our air, for the children who don't have enough food, for our folks who are living on the streets who don't have access to enough food and are, are at such risk for, uh, for Michelle, um, for for the people who are on the cruise ship that is being denied entry to this country. Um, for the people in our detention camps um, been separated from their families. Uh, for all of us who are scared to death and scared of death and scared of illness. For all of us, gracious God, that we might feel your healing, holy presence, and that we may use what we have to make a difference. And that, gracious God, we may, and it's going to take a while, but that we may have the steadfastness to stay home. To wash our hands and to pray. Mm for those who may die this night alone, tomorrow, the next day. In your blessed, holy name, we now pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I should note that Father Chris Harris has been here as well. And then Marcel Amin-Ra, who might be related to the Amun-Ra, uh, Chi Amun-Ra, which is one of my dear friends. Um, uh, we are so grateful um, to have uh, so many of you with us tonight, folks. You guys are, are um, been wonderful to have you all here. I want to also thank uh, Bishop Perry for just, just being so incredibly open and transparent and lovely and willing to be vulnerable, willing to be uh, such a such an incredible leader to us at this time. We are so blessed to have you with us tonight, and and we know that you are being uh, pulled um, in many directions. So thank you for the generosity of your time, and and we look forward to um, we'll follow up tomorrow with um, with the things that we just discussed. Thank you, and do you know on Sunday at seven, I'm gonna host for our diocese. A call. I've got um, um, Meredith Hill, who is the director of the emergency department out at Sparrow Hospital out in Lansing, 
parishioner at St. Clair's and um, um, oh, Abram, oh, I'm forgetting Abram's last name, um, also a parishioner at St. Clair's and he's an epidemiologist. Beautiful. Um, so we're gonna, I'm gonna host a conversation for our diocese writ large um, uh, and, and it's COVID-19, um, COVID uh, a, a scientific and pastoral conversation. That's beautiful. And um, for those of you also uh, listening, we've got um, a follow-up on our psychology of pandemics, which was great. We should, we should maybe put together like a web page where we put these things up because I've got John Barry is going to be coming in uh, April 15th. Um, and he's going to be wonderful, and we're going to match him with a, a, an epidemiologist from Wayne State named Paul uh, Kilgare. Um, and so uh, please, uh, folks, just, just continue to follow our social media. Uh, make sure you get on our, our feeds. Make sure you get our emails. If you have any questions, um, you can see them. Um, all, um, all um, uh, we'll, we'll, We're going to be sending you emails because many of you registered. So just keep following us. And uh, thank you, Bishop Perry. Again, we look forward to seeing you seven o'clock on Sunday. All right. All right. Take care. Thank, thank you, guys. Take thank care. you. Bye -bye. Wash your hands. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristChurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at ChristChurchCranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.